everyone and welcome back to the Did They Do It podcast. I'm your host McKinley Daw and updates. Um, I moved back to college. I'm really sad. I started classes on Monday and they've been good. I mean, it's just college classes. I mean, it's just sucks, right? Like, I don't want to go back to school. But, oh well. You gotta do what you gotta do. It's last semester, the last semester of the year, though. So, I'll get done in April, which will be amazing. I'll have a, such a long summer. It's gonna be awesome, and I look forward to it every day. Anyways, I hope you guys are all having a great week, but let's just hop into this week's episode. This week, we will discuss one of the longest wrongful convictions in the U.S. This is a story of the murder of Larry Ingram, John Walker, and Sherry Black, and the wrongful conviction of Kevin Strickland. Kevin Strickland's upbringing and the associations he had while he was growing up is important to understand why he was put in jail and holds the record for one of the longest wrongful imprisonments in U.S. history. Kevin Strickland's parents got divorced when he was just 16 years old. At this point, he said that he began to lose his direction in life. His grades began to suffer, and he and his siblings were regularly left unsupervised at home. He began drinking and smoking marijuana, which he referred to as bad teenage habits. In 1978, at the age of 18, Kevin became the father of a baby girl. To give his newborn child a chance of stability that he didn't have growing up, he was looking into joining the military. Kevin's father also wanted him to cut ties with his friend Vincent Bell, who had just gotten home from a stay in a juvenile detention facility, for reasons that I couldn't find anywhere. On April 25, 1978, Vincent Bell, who was 21 at the time, along with 19-year-old Kilm Adkins, 21-year-old Terry Abbott, and a 16-year-old, whose name was not included in any of the sources, probably because this kid was a minor at the time, so they can't really include that name. So these boys stopped on their way home to talk to Kevin Strickland outside of his home. Not really sure why. Maybe that was just a regular thing that happened. They just... We're friends and wanted to stop by to chat, I guess. Kevin said that they chatted for a few minutes and that he told the boys that he was going to go spend some time with his daughter. The exchange was brief and Kevin said that he didn't think much of it. At this time, Kansas City, where our story takes place, was dealing with very high rates of violent crime. They had 120 murders during this time, which was more than a 20% increase from a decade earlier. So, obviously, crime isn't new. It's not violent crime. is isn't something new that's happening in this area, right? After Vincent, Kilm, and Terry talked to Kevin, they began, they began to plot about what they could do to get back at Larry Ingram. Larry had apparently won $300 from Kilm in a craps game by using loaded dice. So, essentially, they were playing some sort of gambling game, casino-type game, and he used dice that were rigged to land on a specific side more than a fair die would, so that he, he, basically, he cheated, essentially. The three men decided to get retribution that 
they were going to go pay a visit to Larry at his rented bungalow on South Benton Avenue, where he regularly hosted gambling parties. On April 25, 1978, Cynthia Douglas, Larry Ingram's girlfriend, as well as Larry, were joined by John Walker and Sherry Black. The four drank, smoked weed, and watched Three's Company that night, when suddenly two men barged into the home with guns. When Larry asked one of the men what he wanted, the man replied, You know what I want. One of the men opened a door in the house and let two other men in. They tied the four friends up and began searching the house. After plundering the home, the men brought Larry into a separate living room and shot him. The four men then came back into the main room, where the other three were still tied up, and shot John and Sherry in an execution-style slaying, is what court records state, basically meaning they were probably just shot in the back of the head. Cynthia suffered from a non-fatal gunshot wound to her thigh. But Cynthia understood the stress of the situation at hand and slumped next to Sherry Black, her best friend, and pretended to be dead. Which, this is so traumatizing, obviously. She just witnessed her best friends getting shot. She didn't technically witness her boyfriend getting shot, but she knows he's dead. She just got shot in the leg and now she has to lay next to her dead friend and pretend that she is dead so that she can survive to tell people what happened. That's... That's absolutely scary, but it was really smart of her to pretend that she was dead because who would have known what would have happened if she was still alive. She probably wouldn't be alive. So when she was sure that the group had left, she freed herself from whatever she was tied up with and limped out of the house and down the road looking for someone to help her. Eventually, she found a 17-year-old girl outside who called police for her. According to police records, Cynthia begged this girl for a hiding spot, saying, quote, They don't know I'm alive. They think they killed me. It was around 10 p.m. that night when Kevin was watching TV when the news of the triple murder went live, which is pretty fast. That the amount, the, from the time the murders happened to the time it went live on television is a pretty short amount of time. Kevin said that he had stayed home all night on the phone and played games after eating dinner with his family. His alibi was verified by numerous of his relatives. The next morning, Kevin's girlfriend dropping off their little seven-week-old daughter to him, and she allowed two Kansas City police detectives to enter the home. The detectives asked Kevin if he would come to the police station to answer some questions, and he basically asked, he's like, do I have a choice? And the detectives tell him, no, you don't have a choice. Okay. Weird. On the ride to the station, Kevin had told officers that he had been drinking and smoking the night before as well as in the morning, apparently. Kevin recalled later that he was offended by what he called stupid questions by the officers who were giving him a ride to the station, such as them asking him how many guns he owned, which he responded with, quote, I've got as many guns as you got, which I don't know. Why be so snappy with them? I mean, it's kind of, I don't know. I feel like when I, if I think if I was in a back of a cop car going to the police station with two cops and they were asking me how many guns I owned, I'd be like, none, which is true. I don't own a gun, but you get the point. You don't want to be super snappy. In an interview with the Washington Post, Kevin said, quote, I'm not thinking this is part of a police report or I'm under investigation. I'm not thinking I'm a suspect at any point.
So basically he's saying that during this ride, he has no notion that he's in trouble for anything. He's like, I haven't done anything. I don't know why I'd be put under arrest, why any of this would be part of a police report, why I'd be a suspect for basically anything because he hadn't done anything. So once he got to the police station and he began to be questioned, he realized that he was being accused of something that he didn't know anything about aside from what he saw on the news the night before. During the interview, he told police about the interaction he had with the three men at 5 p.m. the day of the murders. After a while of being interviewed, Kevin stopped cooperating and said, quote, book me or turn me loose, but if you do, next time you come after me, draw first or I'll kill you. So, not the best look for him, obviously. I don't know why he would say that. Obviously, he's a little bit snappy from what we've seen. Police told Kevin about Cynthia, the surviving victim. So, Kevin requested that they do a suspect lineup because surely the survivor wouldn't recognize him as one of the shooters because he wasn't there. So, that's exactly what they did and they planned on. Cynthia was shown a lineup of black men, four black men to be specific, including Kevin. Now, keep in mind, it has been less than 24 hours after she witnessed her boyfriend, well, heard her boyfriend be shot, and witnessed her best friends being shot and having to play dead to keep herself alive. She even told the editor of the Kansas City Call years after the murder that she still had blood and brain matter on her face and in her hair when she went into the station since she was just released from the hospital. Cynthia then identified Kevin Strickland as the man with the shotgun who shot her boyfriend and her best friends. Though cops didn't ask her to identify the man with the shotgun, they asked her to which of the men was Kevin Strickland. So when they're doing the lineup, they didn't say, okay, are any of these men the men that you saw with the shotgun? They asked her which one was Kevin Strickland, and obviously she identified him because she knew him. And then that's kind of just the story that they went with from there. Like, not really even an identification at all. More just recognizing someone you know. But that's what they went with. That she identified Kevin Strickland as the man with the shotgun who killed her best friends and her boyfriend. Cynthia also told investigators that Kevin had reached out to her family earlier that day and asked her to keep quiet about what she saw in exchange for $300. So, obviously, still not a good look. The police then arrested Kevin for real and charged him with one count of capital murder and two counts of second-degree murder. Now, this can kind of be confusing, because why not just do three counts of second-degree murder? But let me explain to you kind of why they did this. So, if the story that the cops are coming up with is true, Kevin is the shooter. And he's the one with the shotgun, the one who shot and pretty much killed the three people. Who killed Sherry, John, and Larry. But let me explain to you kind of why they did this. So, this is... So, capital murder is a pretty big charge. So... Because he's the one that supposedly killed them, obviously he's going to get worse charges, right? So capital murder is essentially just first-degree murder, which first-degree murder is just them being charged with the suspicion that they took time to plan out how they were going to kill them before they did it. But the capital murder charge basically makes them eligible for the death penalty 
if capital punishment is legal in the state, which in Missouri at this time it was and it still is legal there. I believe that they put the other two second-degree murder charges on there, which second-degree murder essentially means it wasn't they they're under the suspicion that it wasn't planned and it was more of a heat-of-the-moment type thing. But obviously, I don't think that this was that. They came with guns. They came with stuff to tie them up on. The other guy led in two more people. Obviously, this was planned. So I think they put these two second-degree murder charges on there just because the capital murder charge is super extreme with its punishment. If the judge decides, if like the prosecution decides to go for that, if the judge decides to sentence him to that, that's obviously a very intense charge so they just put second degree that's that's my thoughts but hey it's just my opinion so vincent and kiln were later arrested in kansas and were expedited to missouri to face murder charges as well kevin's trial began in october of 1978 there's not much info on what happened exactly at this first trial or what was presented at court but obviously whatever it was was enough to implant doubt of his guilt into one juror. The jury deliberated for several days but hung 11 to 1 and a mistrial was declared with the one black juror being the one voting for acquittal. The prosecutor told Strickland's attorney that letting that one black juror on the jury was a mistake and that he wouldn't let it happen again. And he didn't let it happen again. During Kevin's second trial in April 1979, he went before an all-white jury. During the trial, a shotgun that was found not far from the scene and was identified as the one used in the murders was presented, but Kevin's fingerprints weren't on it. His fingerprints were also not found anywhere at the crime scene, but they were found on the rearview mirror of Vincent Bell's car, which is random. Like, how does that prove that he murdered three people, but whatever. Cynthia once again identified Kevin as the man with the shotgun. The defense put up several witnesses that corroborated Kevin's story that he was at home that night. His brother was there with him and he testified of that and his girlfriend testified that she spoke to him over the phone three times that night. Kevin also took the stand in his own defense and testified that he was not involved and that he had only learned about what happened when the cops began to question him about the murders. Even Kilm Adkins' mother testified that her son, Vincent Bell, and Terry Abbott and another man were at her house around 7 to 7.30 p.m. and that she knew who Kevin Strickland was and he wasn't there. After just an hour of deliberation, the jury convicted Kevin Strickland of one count of capital murder and two counts of second-degree murder on April 26, 1979. He was sentenced to life without parole eligibility for at least 50 years and two concurrent 10-year sentences. So, basically, like, when you strip it down, he is not getting out. He's leaving there in a body bag. It's basically what they're saying. This life in prison isn't technically life. I think it's, like, 75 years. And without parole eligibility for 50 years. But then he also has to serve the two concurrent 10-year sentences. So, 20 years after that, he's basically serving for 95 years and he's 18 at this point so yeah odds aren't looking good 
Kilm entered an Alfred plea, which we've talked about before, basically meaning that they realize that the prosecution has enough evidence to convict them, but they maintain their innocence. Kind of confusing, but we've talked about it before. And he received a 20-year sentence. Vincent Bell pled guilty to three counts of second-degree murder and also received a 20-year sentence. So, Kevin is the one receiving the most amount of years. And they, I know I know that he kind of maintained his innocence, which is why I went to trial and the punishment was probably more severe. But 20 years for how brutal that was seems absolutely, like, not enough to me. Vincent Bell even said at his own trial, quote, I want to let them really know what happened out there in society in 1978, April 25th, and let these people know today that one of the suspects today that Cynthia said it was, it wasn't him. I know for a fact because I was there, and she mistakes that man the same as the state mistake that man, post quote. And obviously he doesn't have the best grammar, but basically he's saying, hey, like, I was there. Like, I fully admit that I did this. I'm guilty. And he was not there. Kevin Strickland was not there. So they're totally mistaken. So after Kevin was convicted, he appealed his conviction, arguing that there was an insufficient amount of evidence that supported this conviction, which obviously there is an insufficient amount of evidence. Whatever. The Missouri Supreme Court upheld his conviction in 1980. Kevin then began a series of appeals from 1983 to 2017, all of which were dismissed. The Missouri Court of Appeals wrote on March 14th of 2017, quote, The substance of Strickland's 2015 PCR motion is nothing more than an attempt to piecemeal allegedly new arguments for old claims that have previously been asserted by Strickland in his PCR motion odyssey that has now spanned over two decades. So basically, they're saying you have no substance to your argument, which I find absolutely stupid because I totally think there is. Anyways, so separately from these motions, Kevin filed a petition for a writ of habeas corpus in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Missouri on July 16, 2013. He claimed his trial attorney had been ineffective because of his failure to adequately challenge Cynthia's identification of him. He also presented two new pieces of evidence in this writ. The first was an affidavit from Kilm stating that Kevin wasn't involved in the murder. The second was an email that Cynthia had written to the Midwest Innocence Project on February 4, 2009. She said, quote, I am seeking info on how to help someone that was wrongfully accused. This incident happened back in 1978. I was the only eyewitness and things were not clear back then, but now I know more and would like to help this person if I can. Cool. The email didn't identify Kevin and an attorney with the organization wrote back a few days later asking Cynthia to have the defendant contact the group directly since its policies didn't allow it to advocate for a defendant unless the defendant was the one making the request and Cynthia never wrote back to them. Without holding any hearings, the court dismissed this petition on July 30th, 2013. It said the matters had already been addressed in previous claims, which literally hadn't, but whatever. Cynthia died in 2015, and in September 2020, the Kansas City Star published an investigation into Kevin's claims of innocence. 
in November 2020, the Midwest Innocence Project, which has now taken up Kevin as a client, now representing him, asked the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office to re-examine the case. The office's Conviction Integrity Unit began a lengthy review. In its report, released May 8, 2021, Prosecutor Jean Peters Baker said, quote, Reliable corroborated evidence now proves that Mr. Strickland is factually innocent of the charges for which he was convicted in 1979. In the interest of justice, Mr. Strickland's conviction should be set aside and he should be promptly released and he deserves public exoneration, post quote. So now even the prosecutor is saying he's innocent. And this is in May 8th of 2021 and stuff still doesn't happen. So after more months of more appeals and more denials and Kevin Strickland rotting in jail, Judge Welsh vacated Kevin's conviction on November 23, 2021. The judge felt that Cynthia had recanted her identification in the email that she sent to the Midwest Innocence Project. When released, Kevin was 62 years old and confined to a wheelchair. Since Missouri only provides compensation to wrongfully convicted defendants who prove their innocence through DNA, Kevin didn't qualify for any state compensation. Kevin's attorney said in a statement, quote, Mr. Strickland was falsely held for 43 years, and he doesn't have a single cent to support him from the state of Missouri. He should be paid for his wrong that happened to him. No one could argue that would not be the right thing, the just thing to do. A GoFundMe was started by the Midwest Innocence Project, which raised $1.6 million in six days for Kevin Strickland. Kevin told the New York Times that while he appreciated the outpouring of generosity but it just didn't get the essence of who was responsible for what happened to him. He said, quote, the courts, he f- they failed me, and that's who should be trying to make my life a little more comfortable, this quote, which I absolutely agree with. Like, I think it's stupid that there's some sort of law in Missouri that says we only provide compensation to defendants who prove their innocence through DNA. This man spent 43 years in jail because you guys were lazy and couldn't do your job. Like, give him, like, 43 years can't be given back. But, hey, at least give him some money so he can live a good life now. And, like, he's already 62 and confined to a wheelchair. And the police misconduct that happened in this case is absolutely insane. They didn't do their job at all. And it all happened so fast. They were like, okay, this is the guy you saw with the shotgun. Boom, he's in jail. Great. And he spends years and years trying to, and he's maintaining his innocence the entire time, trying to prove himself. And it's just absolutely horrible that this happened to him. Even when the people who are guilty and are admittedly guilty say he wasn't there. How do you, how do you keep that man in jail for 43 years is beyond me absolutely insane but that is the story of the murder of john walker larry ingram and sherry black and the wrongful conviction of kevin strickland and yeah i hope you guys enjoyed that episode it was kind of a crazy one but make sure you go check out our instagram it's at but did they do it pod so that you can see all the pictures associated with the case and make sure you check out our website, too. I'm going to update that tomorrow. Um, I believe 
that most of the episodes are on there. I don't believe the last one is. Still getting on updating those, so make sure you check that out tomorrow. And I don't think I can think of anything else. Have a good rest of your week, guys, and I'll be back with you guys next week with a brand new episode. Bye.